welcome to Bethlehem Covenant Church's sermon podcast. We pray that you will be blessed as you listen to this message. Okay, our scripture for today is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. If you would like to follow along with me, Luke 2, 1 to 16, it says this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were afraid. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign unto you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone back into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. I get to talk about one of my favorite stories today. Uh, I have always loved Christmas and I've always loved Luke chapter 2. Um, every Christmas morning, <coughs> excuse me, growing up, my uh, grandpa Olson, he read this scripture for us to begin our day. And of course, Linus, he recited this scripture in a Charlie Brown Christmas, which is one of my favorites. But it's what Christmas is really all about. It's the true story of what happened, the miracle of Christ's birth. Shepherds and angels and no room in an inn. Um, a baby laid in a manger. God coming to be right down here with us. Uh, today, I want to explain just a little more about what we read here and what it means. And I also want to speak today about joy, real joy. You know, the kind that the angels declared, good news of great joy that will be for all people. That's come to us in Christ. Well, what is that joy that the angels are referring to and how can we live in it? You know, even letting it wash away some of the depression we might have or anxieties or sadnesses that we might feel today to live in the joy of the Lord. I want to speak about that too. So first, let me first share about what we read here in this famous chapter. First thing I want to say is that this story about Jesus' birth only appears here in the Gospel of Luke. Of all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only Luke tells this story. Matthew shares two different Christmas stories, one about an angel coming to dose Joseph in a dream to tell him it's okay to take Mary home as his wife. And then second, the story Matthew tells us 
is about the three wise men. Matthew 2 is the only place where they are found. Um, so Mark and John, they don't speak at all about the birth of Jesus. They start when the Lord is already grown. But Luke is different. Luke begins here at his birth. He's the only one who shares about Zechariah in the temple or about the angel coming to visit Mary ahead of time to tell her she's going to be with child or about Mary going to see Elizabeth and staying with her until John is born, about Mary's song or about them traveling all the way to Bethlehem and having the baby in a stable. And I think there's a reason that Luke wrote the most about the birth of Jesus. It is because Luke was a friend of Mary. This is her words. She probably sat down and told all of these things to Luke so that he could write them down to include for us. These are most likely Mary's stories, her account, because she was there. And if you look over at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke in Luke 1.1, it says that many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you. So this is what Luke does, you see. Luke investigates. Luke interviews. Luke makes sure that he's telling the whole story and that he's telling it right. That's why he's got so many details that we even read here for today. Like the detail that opens our chapter. Luke writes that in the days of Caesar Augustus, a census was issued for the entire Roman world. The first census, Luke says, that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. That's a lot of detail, right? Historical context, important details, for it puts Jesus at a particular time in world history. And a time everybody could look back up and, and know exactly when it was. I mean, there are records of when Quirinius was governor of Syria. There's other records of when the Judean census took place, referred to here. It matches this is a big deal. Luke is telling us these details because he wants us to know he didn't make this stuff up. It's an historical account. Luke is telling us exactly when and where Jesus was born. And he mentions certain people by name. He mentions Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, Mary, Joseph. He talks of shepherds and certain places by name. Bethlehem, Nazareth, Syria, Rome. They're all real. This isn't a kid's story or a legend. These are real people in real places at a real time. Luke is saying this is what happened and when. You know, it's quite amazing to me that both Nazareth and Bethlehem still exist today. And you can travel over there and go see them. You can go to them. 2,000 years after what happened. Back then, both of the towns, Nazareth and Bethlehem, they were so small that, you know, I'm sure they would have just disappeared in history if it wasn't for Jesus. I mean, much larger cities back then in ancient times, like Sephora or Tiberias or Chorazim, they're completely gone today. 
nothing but a few rocks remain in, of these ruins. And, but they were major cities back in that time. I'm talking 50,000 people living their cities, whereas Nazareth was only about 150 people back then. And Bethlehem, possibly the same. But both of those are still around today, whereas the bigger cities are not. Nazareth is, is where Mary and Joseph were from. And it was a small village up north near Galilee and was basically poor and made up of farmers. It's 80,000 people today, if you go and see it. Bethlehem is 100 miles south of Nazareth, just outside of Jerusalem. It's on the other side of the hills, not far from the big city. Back in Bible times, it was less than 200 people. Today, it is 30,000 people. Back in Bible times, Bethlehem's claim to fame was that it was the birthplace of King David, Israel's most famous king. But that was it. There wasn't much in Bethlehem. It just had maybe a few places to stay and some shepherds. The reason for the places to stay was because when pilgrims traveled to Jerusalem to get to the festivals every year, Bethlehem was the nearest town. And so if you couldn't afford to stay in the big city, you would camp or stay in Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem was and still has all of these limestone caves that are all around it. And so it was perfect back then for traveling shepherds to find shelter for the night or for people in their you know, their flock. And in fact, if you go there today, you can still see the ancient smoke stains on the roof of these caves where hundreds and even thousands of years of shepherds have used them to make their fires. And so I believe the only reason that Bethlehem and Nazareth are still around 2,000 years later, these tiny little towns, is because of Jesus and the Christians who have gone to these sacred places to remember what happened there. The oldest church in the world is in Bethlehem, the Church of the Nativity, built in 300 A.D. over these limestone caves where early Christians have traditionally worshipped and believed that Jesus was born. And Bethlehem and Nazareth, interestingly enough, are the towns in Israel with the most Christians today. Isn't that interesting? Most of Israel is Jewish or Muslim, 98%. But Bethlehem has a Bible college, and Nazareth has a Bible society, and there are many churches and ministries in these two towns that are still bearing a witness for Jesus, the light still on in those places. So Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, Nazareth, Bethlehem, they're all real, giving further authenticity to our story. Well, the Bible tells us that Caesar ordered a census, and that's what kicks everything off, you know. And a census was a way that the Roman governors could both control the people as well as tax them. And so each family had to travel to their own town of their ancestors to register for that census. Well, our scripture tells us that Mary and Joseph, they went from Nazareth up in Galilee down to Bethlehem, the town of David. Why? Because they belonged to the house and line of David. Luke is telling us here that Joseph was a descendant of David. And so that is why he and Mary had to leave their home and travel to Bethlehem just before she was going to give birth. In this one sentence that we maybe is again just a detail we would have passed over, 
Luke is really telling us a lot. He is telling us facts here that for a Jew who knew the prophecies about the Messiah, it's proving that Jesus was him. For the prophets spoke of the coming Messiah coming from the line of David. And in Micah 5, 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me who will be one ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. <coughs> and so the details we find in Luke both fit historically and they fit with the prophecy of the Messiah, the line of David coming born in Bethlehem. And you know, it's interesting to me because today we wonder about the signs of the end of the age, right? And the Lord's coming back. Are we living in the last days, we wonder, when, you know, we will see the, the Lord coming in the clouds as he has promised and also the book of Revelation speaks about it. For we know that one day he will return. And we read of the signs of what will be happening in the world at the time of his coming and which nations might be at war and the Antichrist and persecution and all these things written down in the Bible for us to know. But they're somewhat confusing. Well, back then, the Jewish people had prophecy, too, but of his first coming. It's in the Old Testament. And back then, people knew the scriptures, but it still didn't all register or make sense to them until it started to happen. And then looking back, Luke can say, yes, Mary was a virgin, just like the prophet says. Joseph come from the line of David, just like the prophecy says. They have to go to Bethlehem to register. It all fits with the scripture that God told us. And I think this is how it'll probably be in our day or whenever the return of Christ comes. It'll be just as real. There'll be some president on the throne, some world leaders doing something, some antichrist thing or world economy. And then all of a sudden it just fits. Confusing now to us, but written proving that God is in control. And just like the Christmas story was a real time and real history with real people, so too the return of Christ will be a real time and real history with real people. And all eyes will see him. We have to be ready. So Mary and Joseph in our story, though, it says they traveled 100 miles to get from Bethlehem down to, to, from, to Bethlehem from Nazareth. And, and she was pregnant at the time. And the scripture tells us that while they were in Bethlehem, the baby Jesus was born. And all it tells us is that they wrapped him in cloths and they laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And like I said, Bethlehem was small. It was made up of shepherds and a few inns. Now, the truth of the matter is the word for inn is actually the same word for guest room. And so it's possible that Luke is telling us that Joseph had family in Bethlehem and the house was full. All the guest rooms were already taken for all of his relatives were in town too because of the census. And so it's possible that the scripture is saying there was no room for them at the home. So he and Mary had to find shelter somewhere else. Either the inn was full or his family home was full. Either way, this is why Jesus was born among the animals. For what the Bible tells us is that he was laid in a manger, 
which was a stone feeding trough for sheep. For there wasn't many cows in Israel, mostly just sheep and goats. And where were they held? Not in barns like in Nebraska, which are made of wood. Nothing much was made of wood back in ancient Israel. It was too expensive. Not even homes. They, they were made of stone. And barns, so you see, they weren't like the ones we think of today. They were these limestone caves all over Bethlehem. A home was often built out front, and the cave in back held the animals. So whether it was a local farmer or the traveling shepherds, the barns back then were caves. So what this is telling us is that Jesus was born in a cave. Mary and Joseph, not having a place to stay, found shelter in one of the many limestone caves in Bethlehem. And Luke is telling us this is where our Lord was born. And his, since his parents weren't privileged at all, they laid him in the only bed they had, a bed of straw in a stone manger. And they wrapped the baby in cloths. The literal word there is rags. Now remember this is ancient times, which probably means it was not uncommon for people to have babies at home and many poor people to camp out in caves for the night. That was probably more common than we would imagine. Who knows, there could have been others in the cave with Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. Maybe other family members even who were finding shelter or other travelers. We don't know. This is the ancient world. It wasn't uncommon to sleep in a cave. But what makes this, I think, so powerful for us is knowing that Jesus was God. He is the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords who left the glories of heaven to come to us and dwell among us. He came to live right where we were. He didn't demand special treatment. He was born to a poor couple who could offer him no royal treatment. You know, he, was, he wasn't sheltered from the cold or have a soft pillow to lay his head on. God gave up all these things to be with you and me. As the Bible says, though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, that we might become rich. Our Lord was found among the needy in our world. He lived right there among them. He was born in a common cave, laid in a manger. Something I didn't know until my travels to Israel is that just outside of Bethlehem are the ruins of a once mighty palace called Herodian. It was named after King Herod, the king at the time of Jesus' birth who tried to have all the baby boys killed, trying to get to Jesus. He was a ruthless king who even killed two of his wives and his son for fear that they wanted to overthrow him. Well, Herodian was his grandest palace, and it's literally a mile away from Bethlehem. It was huge. We know that it had an Olympic-sized swimming pool and all the famous Roman baths and... <coughs> Mosaic tiles and gold. There were quarters for his soldiers to stay that would protect him. Up to a hundred of his soldiers lived there with him. So imagine the size of this palace. There was all the best linens on his bed and all the best food and the spices from around the world. King Herod lived like a king and he flaunted his wealth and power for all to see that he was over them. 
And this palace, Herodian, that he built was literally built high on top of a hill that he himself made. He had his slaves haul dirt for years. He built a small mountain to put his palace on the top of. And it's said that you could see the lights of Herodian for a hundred miles away. King Herod was telling the world, he is king. So this is what the people were used to with kings. Kings were proud. They lived separately and high atop from their subjects. They were all about themselves. They made everybody else their slaves, but not Jesus. Where is he found? Not in a palace made by slaves, covered in gold and fine linens and protected by an army. Jesus is literally found in a cave way below in the shadow of the grandest palace in all of Israel at the time. He is laying in a manger among the poor and the lowly shepherds. One of the people come to lead the people. And so imagine that. Those shepherds and those wise men coming in search for Jesus, for the king, they walk past Herodian, this palace of the ruthless, violent, earthly king, Herod. They walk past that to get to a humble cave in a back alley and find a baby wrapped in rags, lighting in a feeding trough among the sheep. Yet somehow looking upon him, they know they're looking upon the face of God. Philippians 2 says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if you've experienced any tenderness or compassion from him, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, our Father. What a comparison, King Herod and King Jesus. Herod is not the Lord. This baby born and laid in a manger is the Lord. He's not found in a palace on a hill but a manger among the poor. He's not ordering people from a throne, but he's giving his life for them on a cross. He's not dressed in robes and crowns with servants all around him, but he himself puts on the servant cloth with a towel wrapped around his waist, and he washes his disciples' feet. This is our king. He came out of Nazareth. He hung out in poor villages, he invites us to believe in him and follow him in a way that is very different from the ways of the world. Well, after Jesus was born, angels suddenly appear, we read, to certain shepherds. Now, it's been said that the Bethlehem shepherds were unique from all the others in Israel and that they watched over uniquely the temple lambs, the specific lambs used in sacrifice every year at Passover. Those special lambs had to be taken care of a specific way and had to be spotless. And so it was an important job. And it's believed that the Bethlehem shepherds were those temple shepherds. 
If this is true, then this adds a whole other layer to our story. For Jesus was called the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And so it would be fitting for God to invite those specific Bethlehem shepherds to come and see the Lamb that would eventually give his life for theirs. But I also think shepherds are important to our story because they were the least in all of society. They were not respected in their time. They were not the educated or the rich. They were the lowest on the totem pole. Many of them were even children. But the Bible says God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but the heart, and that the first will be last for him, and the last be made first. And we see that. Jesus spent time with the people that Herod never would have spent time with. He welcomed children and the poor and the sick and the ones undervalued by our society. He invited lowly fishermen to be his disciples, and the first to his birth were lowly shepherds. Our scripture says that as the shepherds were watching over the flocks at night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were afraid. And the angel had to say to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he's Christ the Lord. This will be a sign unto you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, all praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, peace to whom his favor rests. When the angels left, the Bible tells us the shepherds looked at each other and said, let's go see this thing that has happened. <laughs> you know, it's amazing what the angels say to those shepherds. First, they say, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Well, what is the good news of great joy that the angel is referring to? Well, the angel goes on to tell us that for today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is Christ the Lord. The word angel means messenger, and angels are often in the scriptures to explain to people what God was about to do, or just did, and what it all meant. And here we see this. They explain to shepherds what has just happened that they would not have known otherwise. A baby was just born in their town. And his name was Jesus. And they explain what this baby means. It means good news of great joy because it's a Savior that has been born for them. Now, Savior means deliverer, means rescuer. Well, what is it that we're being rescued from? Why do we need a Savior? Well, Jesus said in John 3, 16, 17, God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Here he's saving us from death, giving us eternal life. In John, 1 John 4, it says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The angel told Joseph in Matthew 121 that Mary's going to give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So here we see that we're a savior was sent to us to save us from our sins. The word Jesus is a Hebrew word 
for the Lord will save. So his name means Savior. This is the good news that the angels declare the great joy is that a Savior has come for us. We were dead in our sins. We were lost in the darkness. We were separated from God in everlasting life. But God looked down from heaven and his heart went out to us. He cared about us. He loved to see that. And instead of sending us what our sins deserve, he chose to save us instead. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is our Savior. He is God's gift to us who came to save us from our sins and bring us eternal peace with God. That is why the angel says, you don't got to be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. God is for you, not against you. A Savior has been born to you this day, and he is Christ the Lord. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And the people knew, even those shepherds would have known the prophecies of the coming Messiah. Like in Isaiah 9, where it says, The people walking in darkness will see a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light will dawn. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on until forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so you see, this is the good news that the angels came to share with those shepherds, that God loved them and sent to them a Savior, His own Son, who is Christ the Lord, the Messiah, the one they had been waiting for, the rightful King who is going to bring justice and righteousness and peace into them. This is what the angels say to the shepherds, that the prophecy has come about. The day when the child was to be born, the son given, this was that day. This was the day when light entered darkness and it wasn't bleak anymore. This was the day when God's love and mercy triumphed over our deserved judgment. This was the day when our true king came down to save us, our God come to live with us. You see, this is why I love Christmas. It's not about the gifts and the decorations or the songs. It's not even just a birthday for Jesus, but it's the coming of our Lord, the breaking into this world, God with us now and forever, dwelling among us, the good news of great joy that he has come to stay and that we get to know God now and do life with God and we get to live forever with him in paradise someday. We get forgiveness and the Holy Spirit with us. We don't got to be afraid anymore because God is with you, a Savior born for you. He is Christ the Lord. After the angel tells them this good news he says, you'll find this baby wrapped up in claws and lying in a manger in your own town. And then suddenly the sky fills up with angels, a heavenly host, it says, who all begin to sing praises like a choir. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to whom his favor rests. And when they leave, the shepherds look at one another and say, let's go check this out. And they go and they find it. They find the baby and the Mary and Joseph and 
Scripture says they go forth, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had been told. They were just as they had been, been mentioned to them. And I want to end with this, you see. I told you I'd mention joy and how we can have it even when there's suffering or sadness in our life or depression or, <coughs> or things that are bad in our world because those are going to come. They're also a part of life. We're not always going to be happy, but joy is something that is more than happy, right? And I think I realized this that again this week where joy is really found. The answer is found, it is right in our scripture for today, in the angel's word. Joy is not found in the circumstance. It's not getting everything that we want. The good news of great joy that has come for all people is Jesus. It is him. He is our joy. If Jesus is your joy, then whatever happens in your life here, you might be sad, but you won't be defeated. Because he's got you. You still have joy even in the sufferings, even in the tough job or the rocky marriage or the sickness because you still got Jesus. Even in the disappointments or even the grief or death, even in loss of jobs or personal struggles at home, all of this may weigh on you and it, you, you may even be in chains uh, like the Apostle Paul or Peter, but you'll still be able to rejoice in them. How? Because Jesus is our joy. And Jesus is with us even in the prison. He is our strength in the rocky places. His blood covers over all our sins. His death and resurrection means our living hope. We can do all things through him who gives us strength. He's our purpose and our mission every day. The reason for getting up every morning. The good about this day comes from him. Even if everything else is taken away, he never leaves us or forsakes us. If Jesus is your joy, then you'll always have joy because you always have Jesus. He came to live among you. Now, if we let other things begin to steal his rightful place in our heart and we start to let those things come in and become the center focus of our life, well, then we will be overcome by sadness or circumstance. But if Jesus is our joy, we'll always have the strength we need. If Jesus is where you gain your sense of self or hope, your worth, your identity, your mission, your worship, your number one desire, the love that defines you, then even in our most painful and difficult days, whatever they may be, we're going to be able to make it. We're still going to be able to rejoice because we still have Jesus. Nothing can take that away. And he is our everything. And so if you're lacking joy today, come back to Jesus. Abide in him, rest in him, be content in him. Find your purpose, your heart in his if you've ever seen It's a Wonderful Life, my favorite Christmas movie, George Bailey loses his will to live. He's burnt out. He's defeated. He forgets all that he has. But just before he takes his life, God gives him a great gift. An angel visits him to show him what life would be like if he had never been born. In this glimpse, the angel shows George all he has to be thankful for. And by the end of the movie, George is filled with joy. He doesn't have one more thing. But he's able to see what he has. He can now see it. And I pray this for you and for me. 
that we wouldn't get one more thing that we don't need this Christmas, but that we would be filled with the true joy instead upon seeing what we already have but aren't appreciating. Not just the gift of family and friends, but the gift of a Savior that has been born to us, a Son that's been given to us, and He is Christ the Lord. Jesus is our joy, and He came for you. He's here for you every day if you'll just open up the door to Him. He is our forgiveness, the love that fills our heart, the purpose for which we live, the everlasting life, our true joy. Hope you have a wonderful Sunday. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To stay up to date with all Bethlehem Covenant Church's ministries and events, head to bccwaverly.org.